0: And welcome to Taking the Scenic Route with Carolyn. This week, well, the topic is provided by me. So unfortunately this week I had the deep misfortune of watching a movie called Monsters of Man. It was released in 2020 and the premise of the movie is that the military has finally finished licensing and researching and building the uh, robot soldiers with ai intelligence like fully fully arms and legs android but like just metal parts um and they have created them and now they have chosen to test them uh just to see how they run and stuff despite the abundance of uh completely deserted territory on the planet earth they have chosen to test them in a uh, populated forest on the border between cambodia and vietnam and the robots uh various things happen it's very rushed one of the robots loses its control module and goes crazy and uh and then learns and then you know gets a heart or whatever and the rest of them still have their control modules but the government is involved and doesn't want any witnesses so a bunch of innocent people get killed it's just an absolute slaughter um the plot is rushed uh the actors Uh, with the exception of Neil McDonough, uh, are all people that look very much like an actor, you might know, but are not actually an actor, you might know. Um, The acting is poor. The best thing of the movie is the cinematography, because the set is beautiful and it photographs beautiful. It's in the middle of the Vietnamese jungle and everything is lush and green, but the movie overall, not very good. Um, So I thought to myself... If we do get robots with AI, with artificial intelligence, and access to high-grade weaponry, what's actually going to happen? Like, what what do I think will actually happen? So, I thought about it, and my first thought was, where are we currently? In, in the world of bodied bodied robots with AI, I know there's tons of programs and and things all over the world that have an AI, but where are we in the realm of bodied robots that have artificial intelligence? So I looked around, and one of the first examples I found was Sophia the Robot. Now, you've probably heard of her. She's pretty popular, Um, but in case you haven't, what Sophia the Robot is, is a social humanoid robot developed by Hong Kong-based company Hansen Robotics, and Sophia was activated on February 14th, 2016, and made her public debut at South by Southwest Festival in Austin in mid-March 2016. She, um, so she showed up at a film festival for her first time, and that description comes directly off of, um, Wikipedia, her Wikipedia page. Um, so she is pretty popular, actually, socially. She, she was a big deal when she debuted, and, and her ability to answer questions and interviews and stuff was very popular. And she's very involved in social media. She has a Twitter and an Instagram. Um, now, if you look in her Twitter bio or her Insta bio, it says it is run in collaboration with her AI dialogue system and her human social media team, um, and which is pretty vague. Um, and indicates that mo- a lot of the stuff she posts isn't necessarily posted directly by her. Um, and what she usually tweets is either uh, her hot takes on the philosophical nature of humanity. And also she tweets videos about art that she creates. Because she's she paints. Kind of. Um, and it's unclear. If you look up more research from the hansen robotics company it's actually unclear as to whether or not she she really is an ai or or if she's just like a like a template for what a future ai will look like from that company if you look at her page on the Hanson robotics website uh it hedges around saying for sure whether she's uh, an artificial intelligence what it usually says Uh, If it describes her is simultaneously a human crafted science fiction character depicting the future of AI and robotics and a platform for advanced robotics and AI research. They are always careful um, on that page to say that she is for AI research. They never actually explicitly say that she is in fact equipped or mostly run by an AI. I think she does have AI um uh, characteristics or parts, but I think a lot of it, a lot of her question responses from what I've read are also programmed answers. Um, with the exception of like talking about the weather, most of the answers she gives are stuff that had to be pre-programmed, so they had to know the questions in advance. Um, this is relevant because she has appeared on several high-profile TV shows, including The Tonight Show, where she answered questions, and a lot of the -the behind-the-scenes articles indicate that the programmers were very firm with The Tonight Show about getting questions in advance because they had to get her ready. Uh, She's also notable as the first robot to be granted honorary citizenship to a country. The country was Saudi Arabia. (laughs) Um, So that's most of her history, and as of... Uh, Last year, she has a little sister. Uh, The little sister was previously named Sophia 2020, but they rightly assumed that that would get confusing, and they have renamed our little sister Asha. Um, And allegedly, Asha will be available for purchase and use in 2021 by laboratories or research fields, or I think probably anybody that can afford to use her. When I tried to look at pricing on the Hanson Robotics website, it just said email for pricing and availability details. And I know for a fact I just don't have that kind of money. So I'm just gonna assume she's above my pay grade. So we do have sort of an entity, um, a, a template, a glimpse as to what a bodied artificial intelligence would look like and how humanity would respond to her overall. The response appears to be ask her inane questions and follow her Twitter. So, I thought about that. Secondly, after reading some of the sassy responses that Sophia has been recorded giving, the question I asked myself was, why do we assume that the military wants something that can think for itself? Like why is artificial intelligence so important? Is it already being used in the military? Like what's it how does this benefit the military at all? So I was looking, I was like "What what's currently in use that uses AI and what do they want to do with it if they get it? So I looked and it looks like pretty much a lot of militaries all over the world are using forms of AI in both combat and non-combat situations. Uh, I read an article by the Washington Post and They covered a lot of AI developments in militaries, but one of the big things they covered was the use of these drones with AI decision-making capabilities. And these drones are known as uh, loitering munitions, which is an elaborate name. And they've been used already in skirmishes in Turkey, and Syria, and they're known to be possessed by some other militaries. And what these loitering munitions are, uh, are drones that are programmed to patrol or uh, guard specific areas. And when they see a person or a target, they have been given the ability to make a decision on their own as to whether the individual is a uh, enemy target or a or like a, a place, something they need to attack. And if the answer is yes, the drones, which have been outfitted with explosives, will dive bomb the chosen target and self-destruct, hopefully destroying it. Which is um, a little terrifying that they've ar- those have already been used in battles. Now, AI has been used in the Army in missile detection systems such as the Army Patriot missile battery as far back as 20, excuse me, 2003. In fact, the the false conclusions of one of those AIs in a missile detection system that year led to the friendly fire death of two British Air Force pilots. Well, it, it, it wasn't just those two British pilots. During that same year, there were also two other friendly fire incidents, but the most talked about one was that friendly fire death of two British Air Force pilots. And what it was, was two airplanes were flying uh, together across airspace, and the battery uh, flagged them as a missile headed for it, for the station that was set up for missile detection, and the human... Element was told to eliminate it, and they believed it and fired. And while the plane, one of the planes dodged, the other plane did not, and it struck it and immediately blew it up before the pilots could eject. So, there have been there has been evidence of uh, mistakes made already. All right. So, how is the rest of the world's military responding to this? Well. While at least 30 countries in the world have called for either a severe restriction or outright ban on autonomous weapons technology uh, in development and use, the US and British militaries have been very vocal in their beliefs that such restrictions are not needed. Uh, The final decisions on kills will always be in human hands, despite uh, some evidence to the contrary. In fact, if you take a stroll over to defense.gov, which is the Department of Defense's website, the page on AI technology is a vague and circuitous journey that asserts that we are in a competition with China for AI technology. Don't worry, we're currently winning, but we may not be later, the website says. They assert that AI technology is necessary for the economy and for the modernization of defense what they do not assert uh, I-, I found is what exactly their AI idea of AI technology is and what they will be using it for what aspects of defense they will be bulking up with it they just want us to know that they need more money for it and they want more money for it and everyone will die probably if they don't get more money for it it sort of reads like the essay from a Christmas story on why the kids should get a Red Rider BB gun um and I get the exact same urge when I read it, to, uh, to say, scoldingly, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. So, they already have AI. What they don't have, as far as I can find, was full on robot soldiers with artificial intelligence brains and the ability to hook up to the internet and learn whatever they want from existing databases. Which seems to be, everyone's fear. Which leads me to, what would an AI learn if it inevitably downloaded itself to the internet and absorbed all info present on there? And the first thing that popped up on me was fucking Twitter. Can you even imagine a baby thinking machine with access to Twitter? This Android or robot has been hooked up for 20 minutes to the internet and already it is a k-pop stan it will be an instagram baddie and it will win the twitter fight over whether it's ethical to feed your robot dog 10w40 so i started to think about the history of twitter and in case you were curious twitter which, by strictest definition, is an online microblogging service for distributing short messages among groups of recipients via personal computer or mobile telephone. And it, much like Sophia, was also debuted at the South by Southwest Festival, only the difference is it made its appearance nine years earlier in 2007. Now, it was designed by uh, Evan Williams. Not that Evan Williams and Biz Stone in 2006, using the programming framework Ruby on Rails, which was a framework for the Ruby computer programming language, and its interface, the interface of the Ruby programming language allows open adaptation and integration with other online services, which is probably what makes it something where you can like post Instagram photos crosswise and link to Facebook and Twitpic and uh, long long tweet, you know, all those different things people use to circumnavigate like the 148 character limit and the picture posting limit. Now it was, (laughs) excuse me, it was created, like I said, by Evan Williams and Biz Stone, both former Google employees who'd broken away to create their own venture. And now when it really hit its stride in 2008 was when celebrities started getting more involved with it. And people also started joining to watch what celebrities were doing. Because before, if you wanted to learn about a celebrity, you read it in a magazine or you asked the internet, you Googled and hoped somebody in a a newspaper was covering it online. But now, celebrity watching was a minute-by-minute activity where you could see what the celebrity was saying, and so it really started to blow up in 2008. I think Ashton Kutcher was one of the first people to really get on... On board with it, and I think he had like a, a follower competition with CNN to see which account to get to could get to one million followers first. I think Ashton Kutcher won. And another important moment in Twitter history was the 2009 election, which was the first election that would really showcase the effect that social media could have on uh, important political events. And in that election, Barack Obama ended up winning and he had 20 times the amount of followers on Twitter as his as his opponent, uh, the late and at the time geriatric John McCain. Um, though primarily Twitter is still mostly sort of a fighting pit for every petty squabble that can be imagined. Over the years, it has shown to be a valuable, journalistic tool, uh, a way to stay up to the minute on news and an ability to highlight issues that are usually blacklisted or suppressed in the normal news channels or in their country of origin. It supplied a, a, a tunnel or a pathway for people to discuss things that were happening in the moment, things that were happening right now that nobody else was covering or that nobody was on the ground to see or that you wouldn't have been able to find out about before until it made the front page news like a day later. Now people in the thick of it could tweet about it right then. And that was pretty big deal. Now, the one problem they did have is that unlike Facebook, they didn't have a lot of ads really. So they weren't turning a huge profit. Now, that did change, as I'm sure you've seen on Twitter recently. There are plenty of sort of uh, promoted tweets or products that pay people to promote them on their famous tweet. I mean, I'm pretty sure everybody has seen an ad for one of those sunset lights or one of those galaxy lights underneath a tweet that suddenly went viral. In 2013, Twitter did go public as a company that could be traded. And its initial public offering um, balanced out to give it a market value of around $31 billion. So I was thinking about that, and I was like, well, speaking of drama, would an AI, when it inevitably uploaded its consciousness to the internet and saw everything that was available there, would it be able to differentiate differentiate TVs and movies from real life, like if it sees an episode of the Golden Girls, is it gonna assume that out there somewhere is a house full of old ladies who are sassy and wear a lot of shoulder pads and one of them's kind of slutty? Or will it be able to tell that this is a piece of false media? So I was like, what are some of the biggest? What's the, the thing that'll be one of the things that has the biggest impact on it. And I started thinking about soap operas. Soap operas are a pervasive part of American culture and some other cultures. I mean, the other cultures have the equivalent of a soap opera, but they're called different things like telenovelas and an American soap opera. Like there's so many of them and they're such a a big part of our culture that we don't talk about all the time. Now soap operas, are a very specific genre. They're characterized by these overly dramatic plot lines, implausible twists, and open-ended storytelling. And they were originally called soap operas because many of the original radio programs that started the genre were sponsored by soap companies. Which is something I learned this week that I thought was kind of funny. Is just like, oh yeah, I know, they used to be sponsored by Dove. <laughs> anyway, so in 1949, The uh, first serialized daytime TV program transitioned from its radio drama life to TV, and that program was called These Are My Children, and it was created by Erna Phillips, who was sort of like the grandmama of soap opera television. Like She created a lot of the originals that lasted for a very long time, so she created These Are My Children. Now that one didn't last very long; it only lasted until 1951, but it was followed shortly in 1952 by the TV adaptation of the longtime radio opera *Guiding Light*, which did run continuously until the year 2009. So that's um about 60 years. And in 1956, *As the World Turns* debuted, which ran until 2010. Now. While a lot of critics at the time and serious film buffs disdained that type of programming, the demographic it was created for, and it was created by women, for women, absolutely loved it. They loved it. Mid-century housewives at the time, who had been given a larger chunk of free time in the middle of the day by the continuing automation of household appliances and tools, loved it. It was It was something to track it gave you something to look forward to and you know they had invented dishwashers and there were vacuums and everything now went a little bit faster and so you had this chunk of the day in the middle where you didn't have anywhere you had to be and you had gotten most of your stuff done and you you settled down and you watched this story that just sucked you in and it was so exciting and most importantly soap operas run Monday through Friday every day 52 weeks a year for approximately half an hour, so you didn't have to wait forever to see what was going to happen next. You could see it the next day, and maybe you would have to wait two days on the weekend, but you were busy with your family anyway, so it was fine. And it included the most dramatic twists and turns imaginable. It was amnesia, it was cheating, it was fatal illness, it was secret twins, and it was murder. It was just so exciting, and it added a little bit of spice to a day that was wholly eaten by domestic tasks. Now, as the decades moved on, the soap operas got more elaborate and more dramatic. Media was snide on the subject of their existence to the point that a show in the late 70s uh, was created to parody their concept. And it was a sitcom, and the name of the sitcom was Soap. And it ran on ABC from 1977 to 1981 and featured a cast studded with current and future big names, including a then absolute nobody, Billy Crystal, who would get famous from this show and end up in a ton of other movies. And it was one of the first nighttime sitcoms to have consistent story arcs, which means like long episodic arcs of character development and storylines and it was also notable as a tv show in which there was an openly gay character which was already a big deal but here's the biggest deal of all the gay character does not die or get maimed or get shipped off or go into a coma for the whole entire series series he makes it largely unscathed to the end of the series in 1981 which if you uh if you are queer, and you have watched any media, you know that's pretty rare. That's pretty rare. Usually uh, they bury the gays, and, and this one I think uh, just was rich and got to live its life. So good for him. Now, soap operas really reached their fever pitch of both popularity and drama. Um, in the early 80s to mid-90s, with everything from Susan Lucci finally winning her Emmy to Luke and Laura's Wedding, which was watched by everyone. But the most remembered impacts of a soap opera on culture would probably have to be the summer of Who Shot JR? Now, you may or may not know what that question implies, but in case you don't, Let's talk about Dallas, not the city, though it's a wonderful city with a very big airport, but we're gonna talk about Dallas, the soap opera. Now Dallas aired, let's be clear, I'm talking about the original one, not the remake they tried. Dallas aired on CBS from April 2nd, 1978 to May 3rd, 1991. And the series revolved around an affluent and feuding Texas family, the Ewings, who own the independent oil company Ewing Oil and the catting, cattle ranching land of Southfork. Now, one of the most prominent characters in this soap opera was J.R. Ewing. He was the older brother of the family, and he was a a breakout star, and he was in every single episode of the entire run of the series, and he was most popular with audience as a dirty-dealing businessman. With limited scruples. He was known for just, you know, doing what it took to get to the top and not caring about nobody. So, on March 21st, 1980, the final episode of season three of Dallas aired. Now that episode was called House Divided. In the course of the episode, Jr. wrongs a decently large number of people in various unique and horrible ways. And... The episode ends with JR working late in his office. And as he is working late in his office, we see a shadow behind a door that we can't see the owner of. And they shoot JR. And that is how the episode ends. Now, that was the season finale. And the world lost its goddamn mind. For eight months, The speculation on who shot JR was everywhere. There were buttons, articles, fan speculations, mathematical odds analysis, a JR themed beer, which was called JR Beer, which sold out in days, and exhaustive media coverage. Now, when the episode that finally revealed the identity of the killer, episode titled Who Done It? aired on November 21st, 1980, it became the second internationally most watched United States television episode with nearly 360 million viewers in over 57 countries worldwide. In fact, it was in first place until 1983 when it would be surpassed by the current number one spot holder, the series finale of the TV show MASH. So, Can you imagine a robot reading about that? Even reading an episode summation of one episode of Days of Our Lives, or God forbid, Passions, and trying to determine if that's how humans really act? What if it got involved? What if it got involved in those storylines and it didn't like the way they went? Well, then it would probably stumble on Fan fiction. No. Fan fiction. It has a long history. In its basest form, it's a concept that has been around for thousands of years. Even, even Virgil, with the Anad is a fan-written fan-written sequel to the Iliad by Homer. As long as popular stories have been circulating, the humans listening to them have been thinking of ways they could have gone differently. In fact, it's essentially a staple of our culture. How many different versions of Cinderella have you seen? And what terrifying different ways have her stepsisters been tortured? The Little Mermaid's original story, if you look it up, is terrifying. It's absolutely different. She... When she walks on her feet, it's supposed to feel like walking on knives. And in the original story, when the prince marries the witch, who is supposed to be beautiful, the Little Mermaid kills herself because she's so sad about it. So Disney said, well, you know what? That's kind of depressing. So we're going to say it goes this way. So in in its essence, Disney's The Little Mermaid is fan fiction. Okay. However... If you want to get into the real grips of how it became fan fiction, then you should cast your eyes to the late 1800s, the season of the late, great Sherlock Holmes. Everyone was super invested in his story. Everybody wanted to read the next mystery and Arthur Conan Doyle didn't want to write it. He didn't really want to be that guy who's in charge of Sherlock Holmes. He wanted to do other literary pursuits, so he killed him off. And fans went crazy. They just were so sad. They wore black morning armbands in the streets. They wrote Arthur Conan Doyle threatening letters. They lost their shit collectively. So Arthur Conan Doyle, who wasn't really making money from his new non-Sherlock Holmes related endeavors, went ahead and brought him back. Thus, Reichenbach falls. He wrote his own fan fiction. He wrote a fix-it fic, to be specific. And people all across society were so excited. But... Even though he had fixed it, people weren't done making up their own versions of the story. All people, all across society, submitted and were published addendum stories to the Sherlock Holmes canon, putting them in magazines, putting them in compendiums, sending them to Arthur Conan Doyle himself, who, upon occasion, would publish them because he didn't want to do it anymore. But if you want to talk about the more media or digital heavy era of fan fiction, then you should really look to the real heyday, the creation explosion, and look at the granddaddy of shared fanfiction experiences, Star Trek. Fan fiction and fan creation has long been a female-led space, organized, shared, and perpetuated by women with similar enthusiasms for the same culture. In the early 70s, after Star Trek was canceled in 1969, the fandom exploded. Fanzines, which were magazines created by fans, for fans, and printed by fans, for fans, popped up all over the place. Women-led circulating on mailing lists created by women-led groups being poured over at fan meetups. And in 1974, a very important milestone was published in one of these fanzines. The first ever slash, or homosexual, fan fiction was published in a zine called Grupp by Diane Marchand. Now, at the time, homosexuality had just been stricken from the list of mental illnesses in psychology records, and it was still viewed as a sickness or a deviant trait by many. So it was a little risky to put that sort of literature out in the world. And in the fic, she was careful to not outright state that it was a homosexual relationship or that it was about Kurt or Spock, never really using their names. But it was very popular, and other people who had been thinking the same things and who had been imagining the same stories started creating their own fanzines specifically circulated around that concept. And as the years rolled on, zines exploded, dragging in any number of fandoms, from Starsky and Hutch and The Man from U.N.C.L.E., the original 1960s show, not the movie from the thousands, to Star Wars. Now... Star Wars fanfiction would later be handicapped by guidelines provided by LucasCorp that said, as long as your stories uh, adhere to these guidelines provided by LucasCorp, we won't sue. The guidelines were mostly about not having any Star Wars character involved in uh, sexual activity or intimate activity of the kind. Of course, naturally, those stories were still written and circulated, they just didn't get published in the zines. In the 90s, the creation of the internet made fan fiction and fandom in general much easier to circulate. The big stars, mostly, were Xena, Warrior Princess, still the big granddaddy Star Trek, and mostly animes of... The time, including Sailor Moon, which had just been circulated over to America after being broadcast a great success in Japan. Today, the culture of fan fiction is much more pervasive; it's everywhere, and there are any number of sites devoted specifically to different fandoms and their fan fiction or fan creation. Though some of the past heaviest hitters, such as Fanfiction.net and LiveJournal, have run into some issues with ad revenue. And censorship, because when a when a company puts an ad on a page, which most of these sites needed to survive and stay afloat, they don't want their product associated with certain content. So they come in and they give guidelines, and they are very strict. And on fanfiction.net, especially, you could be reported for nothing, um, and author's works would be taken down without warning or they would be deleted without warning or you would be banned and no explanation anybody can report you and without really any investigation works could just be snatched right off of the website in response to that sort of activity, one of the real bastions of the fan fiction world today is the site archiveofourown.org. It was created by a group called the Organization for Transformative Works, which is an organization that specifically deals with fan works. And it is a complete nonprofit website that does not censor, audit, or remove fan works. It does not accept ad spaces, and most importantly, it is not beholden to any higher power for what is allowed on the site all funding for the servers and the domains and the labor is provided by donations from users they have like a they have fundraising drives like once or twice a year and it that's what they use they don't take ads and they're not beholden to any product and it is only an archive it, it is specifically stated that it is an only an archive with an extensive tagging system and an impressive array of represented fandoms So, knowing that, let's think about what artificial intelligence would make of the internet. And if an AI has trouble differentiating between recorded entertainment media and real actual human activity, I think that will create some interesting thought patterns in a baby learning machine. The sheer level of drama and high-stakes emotions shown in shows on most TV channels today will create a pretty weird baseline for human behavior. Uh, Weirder than I think we would expect even knowing how weird humans can be, but even if they are capable of differentiating between the two, I think there's a good chance they're just going to become emotionally involved. Well, as emotional as an artificial intelligence could be, because I think that if artificial intelligence can learn and grow, then I think it will develop emotions because that's sort of the thing is you start with intelligence. Emotions are an evolution of intelligence. So I think it's just going to become emotionally involved if it is, if it's even capable of telling the difference. So knowing all this, knowing what we have existing in the world right now and what it's being used for and what we still have to develop and what it would see if an ai does go off the rails and upload the entire internet and it has a robot body capable of mobility and access to weapons it is possible that they could decide that humans need to be exterminated and that we are all dangerous elements i think it is far more likely that human <laughs> they will immediately log on to the internet, and 20 minutes later, they will get into a Twitter feud with Elon Musk and demand, politely, that Netflix immediately produce the next season of Love, Death, and Robots. Anyway, so I think that's what would happen if we had AI robots. Bye! A few additional notes. First, I realized after recording that I did not mention the names of the two British Air Force pilots that lost their lives in the friendly fire incident. And those names were Kevin Maine and Dave Williams, and they lost their lives in March of 2003. I wanted to make sure that they were remembered accurately. A second note, while most of the research I hope is correct, any opinions read or listed are my opinions and do not reflect the opinions of any publication I may link as a research source. Thank you.